How we live is so different from how we ought to live that he who studies what ought to be done rather than what is done will learn the way to his downfall rather than to his preservations. Harsh or just honest? The Prince Machiavelli. Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. With all good literature, one can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and in life. In the second episode, we will examine the same ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? In this episode, we will juxtapose the quest for power in The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli as Sun Tzu's, or Sun Tzu's, The Art of War, as told through the different literary characters. So seriously, again, guys, we have a spoiler alert. We will be using different pieces of literature to explore the two books, and there's spoilers abound. I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter, and former educator. And I'm Kimberly Andy, travel writer, former educator, and creator of the blog, Lily Pads of Curiosity. The Prince is a 16th century treatise, or perhaps more accurately, political philosophy, by Machiavelli, which has become synonymous with cynical, win-at-all-costs, view on power, and those who hold it. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. One could argue that idea assumes that you must first have the power to be corrupt. But what if you flip the argument? Power doesn't corrupt. It is the corrupt who want absolute power. Hmm. Caveat warning. There are many different interpretations of Machiavelli's work or Sun Tzu's The Art of War's work. I wouldn't even argue that Machiavelli himself might be pissed to see how his name has come to be defined. <laughs> we are not claiming to be experts. We're only wanting to think about the philosophy and how it may apply to life today. Yeah, Machiavelli. Machiavelli. His name's an adjective now, so you think that would kind of tick him off that he did? <laughs> Maybe. It's not loving puppies. <laughs> My name means loving puppies. I think considering when he died, he didn't, it, you know, it didn't get published until about five years after he died. Maybe he'd be happy that it was out there at all. But, uh, <laughs> yay, I got, yeah. oh, yeah. good news, bad news situation. <laughs> good news, you got published, bad news. Yeah. Yeah, you're an adjective. <laughs> and, and we can come up with a lot of adjectives that we won't say on this podcast, even though it's an adult podcast and we may use adult language. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> okay, so both texts that we're going to be talking about argue that deception and warfare or the quest for power is essential. But Machiavelli places more importance on deception's role in the maintaining of that power. So I think where Sun Tzu was talking about gaining that power and how to approach it and how to avoid it, Machiavelli's approach seems to be about the maintaining of power. So Prince states, um, how we live is so different from how we ought to live that he who studies what ought to be done rather than what is done will learn the way to his downfall rather than to his preservation. He also says, 
And I'm summarizing here. Deception for rulers is necessary because all men are wicked and easy to deceive. So it's okay. So when, you know, when I was looking at that, I, I kind of thought, is this argument the come on, mom, everybody's doing it argument? Yeah. Everybody's evil, mom. <laughs> Everybody wants power. But if they all jumped off a cliff, would you follow? <laughs> no, you would take advantage of the fact that they were all dead and you would seize their power. <laughs> so you'd convince them all to jump off the cliff yes. because it's for the good of everybody. Exactly. Because after all, you yes. needed the power. So I, I just wonder if, you know, is this dis- difference between appearance and reality really necessary? It, is he arguing that deception is necessary, even self-deception in that sense? Well, I think it's I, I think it's necessary in the what we're talking about here because when we're talking about all men are wicked and easily deceived. Um, you have to deceive somebody because they're not going to follow you if you're mean and evil and deceptive. They're going to follow you if you are kind and come across as good and, and having something to benefit really? them. Yes, you did you see the the van outside? It's a van with no windows. And when I was walking in, they said, "Look, girl, we have some candy." And the deception made me think, "Oh, but you really wanted that candy." Yeah, though they were dangling Oreos. Yeah, I I just don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it kind of comes back to then maybe he's just more honest about it all. That the self, you know, we we want our leaders and this is really cynical. And by the way, I took one of those online, how Machiavellian are you? And I came up 59%. So just a heads up, Kimberly, you may want to beware. <laughs> that was me running out the door. <laughs> but do we want our leaders to, to deceive us? Would we prefer to be deceived and live our own little happy world I, I, than to, to be honest? Who wants to be deceived? That's what I'm asking you. I mean, I'm thinking I don't want to be deceived. I want it to be honest. But, but do you want to know every place? Is it a happy place to be deceived? Well, do you want to know all the ugly truths of things that are going on? Maybe you know. Is that why people get mad when I post animal cruelty videos? Because I'm vegan. <laughs> like you know. I have to admit, do they just? I, I do hide them. I know you do. <laughs> so are you talking about that on the same line? Like it's okay to be deceived and not know what's going on because ah. Uh, it's a happier place. It's a here, here, no evil, see no yeah, evil. Maybe, maybe but that's you, maybe it's even for yourself to tell your. I don't know. I'm not saying no, no. It's yeah, a good argument to have. Right. Like, is huh. it? And it's deceiving yourself even with that. Like, oh, is that something? I'm a that good we, person. Like, I just kind of going back to Tom Ripley again and the talented Mr. Ripley movie. He says, you know, nobody evil thinks they're evil. They've all they've all got reasons for what they do, or even just thinking about writing your villain is the hero of his own story. Is it necessary to, to have that self-deception? I wow, don't know that's an a really good thing to think about. That really is. Because you think about every piece of literature, every movie that you've seen, and is that absolutely necessary? Or would it ever get past, you know, page one? Probably not. So I was thinking about this book. And do you think it's like a modern-day political manual? Like you mean when Machiavelli says, a prince, therefore, should only keep his word when it suits his purposes? Right. But do his utmost to maintain the illusion that he does keep his word and that he is reliable in that regard. So I don't know. I'm just wondering if, you know, this kind of deception and power are friends since the dawn of time or in the words of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta in Greece, do they go together like Rama Lama Lama, la da ding di dong (laughs) You know, illusion, keeping those illusions going 
maintaining that illusion, but only really keeping your word when it suits your purposes. I guess it goes back to the same question. Uh, yeah, it does. I'm kind of... I don't know. I don't I'm, know. I'm kind of stuck. I, I think that, you know, everything in me morally says, yeah, be honest. Be honest and and own your truth and own it when you do something wrong. Learn from it. Grow. Know yourself. But that's not Machiavellian at all, is Right. It? Do we need that? I In our personal lives, yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, political leaders, I think probably sometimes it's necessary to deceive us to, for national security reasons. Or is it for trust? Like, for example, um, well, national security reasons too, but for, for trust, like you want to believe that you, want, you my leader's never going to make a mistake. They never um, do anything wrong. I can trust that any decision they make is the right one and I'm going to fall in line and do it. So I think, yeah, you're right. It does come down to trust because there were certain leaders where I trusted them. So if they were to say, we need to do this, then I trusted them enough to be like, yes, we okay. need to do this. Then there's other things in the background that I don't know about. And if they don't come across that way, then we're like, you're a freaking idiot. How did you not know that? Like, right. How am I supposed to trust you from now on? And yes. now I'm just going to have to make my own decisions and everybody runs chaotically around. Right. So does that mean that the ends justify the means? That's one of the things that the text argues is that, you know, um, the end will justify the means. So you can be... Um, for example, like spanking your child if they do something wrong. Like they love you as the parent, but you have to use this evil force of spanking to get there, you know, to teach them a lesson so that in justified the means to make them stronger and make them learn not to do something again. Yeah, don't run out in the street. Whatever it is. Right. Like, you yeah. Know, so I think it just depends. I don't think there necessarily could be an absolute with that. Uh, it's a little, you know, moral relativism there, but I think there are times where the ends justify the means. You know, you think about what we faced in World War II. I can't imagine what we had, you know, there were things we had to do in order to end that war. That was overcoming evil so evil didn't continue to spread. But then there you go. That's moral relativism. Is that relative? Because, yeah. Because, you know, if you're saying the ends never justify the means. Okay. That's an absolute. Yeah. But I think we're both saying the same things. And it's, you know, you can't, that's not an either or statement. It's no. a... A, a depending type of statement. Right. I mean, I guess I'm thinking, you know, with World War II, we weren't asking them to be, uh, we weren't trying to lead them. We were trying to put an end to the evil that was spreading. But as far as justifying that means to domestically, to our own people, to justify why we had to send people over in war, you know, our, to fight. our fathers, husbands, sons, and whatever, to fight and why the country went through that, then that does... I, that does go along those lines. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I just don't know if there's an answer, and I, I'm so glad that I'm never the one that has to make that decision. Thank goodness. Right. Um, just, uh, is it better as a leader, then, to be loved or to be feared? Yeah, I, you know what? Thinking about that, I'm not sure you can control either. Can you control whether or not people fear you? You fear, can totally control whether or not people fear you. Right. Can you control whether or not they love you? I think that some people can. I think that you, you, know, you can be manipulative with controlling that, like... Um, if you're dating somebody, are you going to show up with roses or are you going to show up with box of knives, I guess? I mean, like, what what makes somebody... Who are you like, dating that's coming to your house with a box of knives? <laughs> I'm not, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Just FYI, if they come to your house with a box of knives, don't open the door. Because then I'll be a skin suit. <laughs> oh, oh, it's horrid. This horrid. Is not, how'd this go all wrong? <laughs> um I, I'm saying that they can manipulate you into it, but the problem is, is that when you've been manipulated into loving somebody, 
then it's the shit's going to go bad. Like, right. because eventually their true colors are going to come out. And if they're manipulating you into loving them, then they have an ulterior motive, which will fail, which will falter off at some point. Right. And that's what I was thinking of too, that fear has a shelf life. So that if you, if the only way you're in control of a situation or the only way you're in power is to make them fear you, then you have to keep amping up that fear. You can't you maintain. You have to keep reminding this, them who's in charge. Or increasing the fear. You can't, like if they get used to that, if they get used to, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, but I'm not going to be less afraid tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But do you think that this happens in, um, I mean, let's just think about instead of leaders in war, let's think about in companies. Do you think that there's some companies out there that will dangle the carrot in front of their employees' heads, for example? Like, um, you know, you can have, oh, great, we, we've decided to give you Friday off. <laughs> and then people say, oh, next Friday I'm going to get off, and the next Friday do people just Well, then it's, it kind of it? keeps going on to the thing like, okay, so we negotiated and you have every Wednesday, you only have to have a half a day. But then if, you know, people, you know, using that fear tactic on them that, you know, if you're, if you're abusing having that half day, <laughs> then it's going to go away. Not from any personal no, experiences. No, I'm not giving any personal connections at all. <laughs> but you, you understand where I'm going yeah. with that. Like um, what that fear is constantly put in there or. So it's kind of a carrot stick. Totally a carrot stick. Fear yeah. is constantly the the carrots. The love is the carrot stick that is manipulated by this fear of losing that carrot, losing losing the carrot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty Machiavellian, <laughs> especially if it's a plan. Totally a plan. Yeah. Like, so if that's something that you're using to control in any situation, the, the a relationship that you're in, or a job that you have, or as a parent to your kid, like what? When does that become absolute power that corrupt, is evil that, that's corrupt yeah yeah i guess it goes back to the intent and i was thinking about that too with the better to be loved or be feared like think about lord of the flies and jack and ralph and lord of the flies and you know ralph is picked because he's handsome and they like him versus jack who is definitely the more machiavellian fear character but really ralph was a horrible leader and you know it was piggy that was the uh, you know rules we love rules yeah. guy that really probably would have been a much better leader, but he wasn't fear or love. He was smart. So do you, do you think that somebody that's better looking or whatever gets away with Oh, more? yes. Like, 100%. Um, Ted Bundy. Yeah. Oh, that's a scary, <laughs> scary interpretation. Scary interpretation, but exactly yeah. right along that, you know, fear and love. That I would absolutely say that. Or, you know, going back to more literary characters, you look at Lady Macbeth and, you know, she was able to manipulate all of these situations, almost going back more to the art of war, where Lady Macbeth was, they didn't, uh, they misunderstood who, what she really was or underestimated her because she was a woman. So in that sense, she was able to maybe play on their love, really. That's an interesting point. Like, she was, I mean, they should have been afraid of her. Well, what really. is, it's like, what is the manipulation tool of choice for that love? You know what I mean? Like, what is their manipulation yeah. yeah, so, I mean, she definitely played that card with Macbeth. You know, if you love me, you will do this. And really, honestly, he feared her. So sometimes love and fear look like each other. Oh. I guess where I would oh. go with that. Oh, that one that's is really used, good. They're mirrored. Yeah, they're yeah. mirrored. 
or, you know, King Claudius and Hamlet. I mean, it was all about power and what they were willing to do to manipulate that power. Or even something more uh, recent in, um, you know, Dangerous Liaisons. I was rewatching that recently with, and how the two of those characters, the two lead characters in that, basically, that's all, it was all about power and playing on fear and love and, you know, being ostracized and how afraid those society members were afraid of being ostracized. But so. doesn't Prince talk about then, um, you are going to be put in that situation, but you can never let anybody that's following you see you as being the one that is pulling the strings. Is pulling those strings. So you have to have a deputy. So that makes me think of um, Animal Farm. And in Animal Farm, Napoleon always had Squealer. And Somebody to blame. Yeah, Squealer is the one that went out and, you know, gave the bad news and you can't kill the messenger. Right. Don't kill the messenger. Right. Yeah, I'm not the one, but you still don't ever have a direct link to the leader. To his responsibility or her responsibility. Right. Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes me think of Stalin. And any time, you know, with his great purges, and any time uh, things kind of hit his doorstep, he would purge one of his secret policemen or somebody in charge of his secret policemen that they were just overzealous. And that's why all these people were dying versus what he was really doing and totally the, the puppet master behind yeah. the strings. So how does this happen constantly and how does it happen in history and in modern times where it's not blatantly obvious? To yeah, <laughs> well, then you have to have your propaganda, which goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode, the psychological warfare of propaganda. If you're constantly told, you're, don't believe your own eyes, believe what I'm telling you again and again and again. And, you know, something you mentioned earlier too and how fear is the ultimate weapon of propaganda the ultimate distraction, the ultimate red herring. Oh, yeah. What is the best form of propaganda is fear. So fear. that's that's the most um, effective form. So when you think about Animal Farm shows that in every angle. So, you know, even the messages on the wall in Animal Farm. And we didn't say that you couldn't sleep in a bed. We said you couldn't sleep in a bed with sheets. But then if you keep <laughs> saying it over and over again. Right. And then they look at it and they're like, like, oh, oh right. maybe I misunderstood. You did. I missed that. Okay. Right. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm smart too. I got you. Well, then it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Deceptions for rulers is necessary because all men are wicked and easy to deceive. Well, because <laughs> they're just... So, they're so just depressing. <laughs> Man, then we, didn't, we said all men. We didn't say all women. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, well, the art of war infers that good leaders should value the men that fight under them. How does that contrast with the prince seemingly lack of empathy for others? You mean, are they more short-sighted? Yeah, because, again, how do you maintain that? If, you know, if you, you can get people to, you know, you fight for you if they're afraid. But what if somebody else comes along and says, hey, fight for me and I will love you or I will pay you. There's no loyalty in somebody who's just fighting out of fear. No, that's true. What if you took the, um, the opposing side and used it to your advantage so that you had like, um, I'm thinking of the team arrivals. Mm-hmm. With Doors. Doors. Doris Kern Goodwin. Right. Doris Kern Goodwin. And she, my friend. Um, <laughs> I met her on an airplane once, and she was the most wonderful person. I think yeah, I talked so to you smart. about that forever. Like, yeah. how wonderful she how wonderful she was. Her laugh, contagious. Like, and her focus, laser focused on what you'd say and talk to her. But extremely smart. But anyway, um, love you, Doris. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the team of rivals. She talks about uh, Lincoln. You're, you're familiar with that about yeah. with Lincoln and his uh, cabinet there. So 
that he deliberately went out of his way to put people in his cabinet that disagreed with him, much like Obama did put people in his cabinet that disagreed with them. Yeah, because he based it off of after reading Team of Rivals, and he based his cap Obama based his cabinet off of off of the same things. It's kind of like back when I was in high school, like I always talk about when I was on the debate team, I would always choose to debate the side that I disagreed with because then I could really understand both directions and knew both sides of the attack. So that's important. To be even truthful with yourself. And I think that's what it's about. It's like if you have people on, you know, in your life and, and you know, in political terms on your in your cabinet and letting those, I mean, something that I thought was one of the most true statements in the book was that the prince is saying, you know, let your rivals know, or sorry, let your advisors know that it's okay to be truthful with you and disagree with you versus somebody like a Julius Caesar who had all these people that were flattering him and therefore he was manipulated and eventually murdered by these people that had just flattered him to death. Unfortunately. <laughs> literally, literally kill you with kindness. Kill you. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> Very kind knife. Hey, I know. I dated that guy. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so is the prince just more honest about human nature? Again, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I find myself to be a hopeful person, but I think I'm a little bit more practical and think that maybe it is, is cynicism is warranted in this case. Because you got 59% on your <laughs> Machiavellian <laughs> test. A little worried about you. But think about now um, how in, in Machiavelli, also you have to dominate luck. And I think that that's one thing that I, I read in that you have to make sure that you're dominating the luck, which when I read that, the example that was given was how John Smith, when he died young, um, that allowed Tony Blair to be able to jump into the election. And that incredible luck is what gave him the opportunity to then now jump in to the election. And he never would have been in that position if it hadn't been for the incredible luck, it, horrible like this, but the luck that John Smith died, he would have won that election. And so it made me go back to... Um, our previous one, our previous episodes again of the outliers and how that connected and how we talked about luck there, dominating luck and how does that connect to mastering your circumstances and then being able to apply that to. And I think what we came to terms with with that is that when luck happens and you you had that 10,000 hours of practice that you could jump on those opportunities for example, the Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah, no, that luck happened that they had that opportunity to be able to go and practice rock all those kids and, yeah. and then, then practice a lot. Or Bill Gates having that incredible luck to have a computer lab open to him um, that he could use. And so he seized that incredible luck and that opportunity to be able to master those circumstances. Another thing that um, in my research with Machiavelli, uh, Machiavelli that came up was how it's in how it's related to corporate relations now and how businesses are using these um, techniques because it is the art of war is now like business related so much in corporations and so thinking about like different high up companies like Google and Apple and Facebook you know in order to have power in the world you must have the appearance of being nice and good, wow. You know, that's scary. It's very scary. And mm -hmm. it's motivated by higher aspirations. So common people are impressed by appearance and results is what the, the mentality is with all of it. Pretty, pretty crazy. Um, I want you to take the test, Missy, <laughs> and see what percentage you came up because that was a pretty Machiavellian statement. Well, that's what, just what I researched. Yeah. You know, that's not my percentage. That's just what, what, what I researched. Another one I found that followed Machiavellian was uh, Tupac. I was very yeah. interested in that, and I, you know, I d come from the the 
generation or whatever that I didn't listen to Tupac and I'm not I don't listen to rap music and it made me want to now listen to rap music I didn't listen to it because I I'm, I'm going to make myself sound really old here but I didn't understand what they're saying I don't understand I don't I can't understand the words coming out of your mouth <laughs> nobody understands the words coming out of it's not that I don't understand the lyrics I don't I can't hear the lyrics to understand what he's saying so it made me want to go back and like look at his lyrics and then maybe pull out all of those that verbiage that clouds it for me and put it into basically a country song and and try to understand it um, but in Tupac's mind government is the biggest mafia and that it's better to be feared than loved and so that's very interesting to see what was the message that he was trying to get across today. So my question to you is, which technique, Prince or uh, Sun Tzu, did the Godfather follow? Well, I think both, you know, in that quest for power and maintaining that power, I always felt like the Godfather, there was a sense of rules. They had a set of rules that they wouldn't cross. So, for example, you know, they weren't willing to sell drugs and that's really kind of what stirred the initial rebellion that some of the families who were willing to sell drugs had with the Corleones. So I think there was a code of honor and a code of ethics that they weren't willing to cross, where I think Machiavelli, there's no talk about, is there, is there a wall you won't cross? Is there a boundary you won't cross? So just, I, I think probably more they'd be aligned with Sun Tzu's philosophy in the art of war than they would be in necessarily Machiavellian versus something like the God, um, I'm sorry, Game of Thrones, where that's win at all costs. You know, Cersei never sat down and wondered about where she should stop and how manipulative those characters were. Somebody like Littlefinger, for example, who was willing to manipulate everybody and anything to gain that power. And even, you know, the end of the first season, again, spoiler alert, he double crosses Ned and it leads to Ned's death. You know, he even admits it at that point. Like Littlefinger has that discussion with him, like, why did you trust me? Yeah, I definitely think the Godfather has a more optimistic or I don't want to use the word appropriate, but the Godfather, there, there were morals and ethics involved in what they did. So is there any way that you feel like you could be both could you be both loved and feared? I hope so. I mean, as a ruler, I I understand. I do. I do understand the need for a ruler to be feared. And But I would hope that the ruler could be loved as well. I hope it would be both. I mean, because I do understand that you do kind of need to be feared at times. You have to be feared in order to have that, maintain that control. If you're not feared, if you're, you... If you're the big boy on the block, you got to have something to back it up. It can't all just be full of sound of fury signifying nothing. You have to have it to back it up. But is is fear strengthened then by the fear of punishment? Yeah, well, who wants to be punished? <laughs> that's just it. So <laughs> that's the truest definition. That's why yeah. fear is stronger than love, right? Well, again, that's pretty cynical, isn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw that your way now. You're, gonna... <laughs> <laughs> You're the cynical one. I'm poly positive. Okay, poly. <laughs> um, well, I, I think when I was doing some research, I found, too, that love is internally based. So it's a feeling that you're largely close to feel so that you can turn it on and off easily. Love is fickle. It comes and goes. But fear is much more predictable, and it's largely externally based. Hmm. So um, lovers can fall out of love on a fast downward spiral whim because fear does not wear off if your base, your character stays the same. Also, too, when I was researching, it just kind of stuck with me that Prince has been the manual for tyrants. 
And a kind of a how-to book. Yeah, literally a how-to book. His little manual. That's what he called it, his little mm-hmm. pamphlet. And um, that's why, you know, he's called Mackie Evil. Yeah. You know, who has had more influence on modern politics, you know. The, the evil or the nice rulers? Yeah. <laughs> Again, um, you're the one saying it. I know. Well, I'm, I'm, follow- I'm just following my research here. <laughs> 59%. So, <laughs> my question is, how do we reverse this then? How do we counter the influence? How do we beat them at their own game? Well, I just don't know if that's possible because then you're going back to human nature. Well, then I'm thinking of, you know, stories with the underdog. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't this kind of like a story of an underdog story? You know, in an underdog story, why does everybody cheer at the end for the underdog if the underdog wins? Is it because it was well, you're not gonna so che- unbelievable? Was you're not going to so- you're not going to root for the guys in skeleton suits and karate kid. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who would but, you be? So, what kind of person would you be if you did? No, exactly. So isn't that just kind of crazy that we follow our leaders or the we're going to vote for the, the, the evil skeleton kids? I kind of, that's kind of how I'm seeing this whole thing is. Like, if we want our leaders to be something that we fear, they're the evil skeleton kids. How do we reverse this? Because we're we're cheering for the underdog. Right. They've accomplished something. They've right. stepped up. Right. Doesn't that just kind of give it a whole different, like, okay, let's think about that twist. <laughs> Back at you, babe. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still voting for Ralph Macchio. Exactly. Exactly. So what does the world look like when the ethical dimensions have been removed? Wow. Are they, it, you're kind of assuming that they're there to begin with. So. Yeah. I guess that's where it kind of goes back to that, you know. Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did they just go together? Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. In Italian, um, Acustia Sacusa. I think I'm, I know I'm saying that really wrong. So just pretend like I spoke Italian to you. But that's where you are, you accuse and then you're excused. So, so what does that mean? You are excused of your wrongdoing as seen as good of the state. And if you have to do something bad, you have to recognize it. And then, so for example, I'm going to have to do something bad to you right now, but the end is going to justify the means and that's going to be okay. So like I'm going to spank you and it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. But it's important that you always I think remember. that lesson will be would be better served after, not before. Because before I'm like, what? Yeah. But if I'm, you know, I can calm down after. And then that goes back to his Machiavelli right, like... You you keep your word that you keep your word when it suits your purposes and disregard it if it doesn't. Okay, so you act like it didn't it yeah. never happened. Don't bring it up. We're not talking right. about this. Yeah, right. we, we weren't here. Right. I was never here. Nothing going on here. Right. Gotcha. One of the last things I wanted to ask you about with Macvelly is the Sopranos. I know you you watch the Sopranos. I watched the first season of the Sopranos. Um, Tony told his therapist that he'd been reading The Art of War. So. He said it was a useful choice for the embattled fictional mob boss. You know what happened after that that episode? No. And that came up? The sales of the book immediately skyrocketed. Isn't that just hilarious? Well, it goes back to illusion. I just love that. Absolutely. And they... um, When I was researching that is by the end of the month, the Oxford University Press had gone through its entire stock and they had 14,000 copies. Yeah, it's great. Anything to get people to read, I think, is a good thing. Yeah, and it was the art of war because he mentioned it. And so they capitalized on this and they used it as free publicity. They ordered like 25,000 more copies of the book and they put an ad in the New York Times. That's great. Hey, (laughs) and everybody read it. And that is an actual, it's a, 
much happier book or a much more positive book than The Prince. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so their their little uh, ad said, Tony Soprano fears no enemy. Sun, Sun, Tzu, Sun Tzu taught him how. The art of war. <laughs> the book for bosses. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just remember that. It's the book for bosses. Yes. You're so boss. There's a new spin on the book's audio version, and that was read by the Game of Thrones. And that's the version that you listened to, right? Yes, guys. with Aiden Gillen again, reading that. It yeah. is, oh, I highly recommend it. It is incredibly sexy yeah. uh, Irish, Irish voice, voice yeah. yes. And that landed on the top 20 of the Audible's um, bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, The Art of War was one of the many books that were given to soldiers um, as pocketbooks, oh, you know, for the soldiers to take in to, um, into war with them on the war field, on, on the battlegrounds to have. A couple other things I found really interesting is that um, Japan has had a long love affair with it. And... They've followed the recommendations or the... With the art of war. Yeah, with the art of war. Yeah. Definitely with the art of war. Yeah, I'm flipping back to juxtapose that just to see like the, mm-hmm. the differences. The funny part that I found was that in China, they don't really follow it now because they're looking more at the Western. That was very interesting. Um, but in the immortal words of Pat Benatar, <laughs> love... Love is, is a, a battlefield. battlefield. <laughs> so it should come as no surprise that titles like The Sinister Sounding, The Art of War for Dating, uh, is something that has been also very, very popular on the show. <laughs> um, well, we would love to know what you think. You can check us out on our social media, Twitter account, at Book Club Juxtas, or our Facebook account, Book Club Juxtapositions. If you could rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, that would be fantastic. And uh, for our next episode, we want you to lock up your libraries if you like, but there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my mind. We're talking about Virginia Woolf, and that's a room of one's own. Our next episode, Virginia Woolf's Fierce Argument for Women's Literary Voices, will be posted on March 23rd. So our next month's book, just as a reminder, that we're doing A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf and Dorothy Parker from an, uh, a collection of Dorothy Parker. But the stories that we're going to be focused on or the works that we're going to be focused on are Horsey, The Waltz, and Mrs. Post enlarges on etiquette. So thank you so much again for spending your time with us. Ciao, bellos. Ciao, bellos. Mm-hmm. <laughs>